Oh, guys, we're going to get this together. We're all having fun up here. This is good. We're into it. Hey, guys, let's go ahead and get together. We're actually having a conversation, and it sounds great. So let's just let everybody be part of it. This table is talking about why, why different Christians... Shh. Why different Christians reading the same Bible can have such different political views. And, Fred, what's your explanation for that to get us started here for all of us? Well, none of those political views are dictated by Scripture, so we can, you know, you have the freedom to choose which point of view you prefer. Even read the scriptures and come up with a reason. Uh, but I think even if they're diametrically opposed, both views could are valid views for Christians to take. So, so we call that a sociology of knowledge, right? So you could have very different views. You could read the same Bible and say, "Do justice, love the poor." Can you get that off? I couldn't figure it out. Um, and. Uh, but then you could have a very different bias for a very different methodology or macroeconomic theory. So if you think about the political thing going on, if you have Sanders over here, um, now what is he doing? Is he concerned for the poor? Sure. He certainly says so. And what would he want to do? He, he's, he wants to be have an, equality, an equity or a just way of distributing wealth. So he, but, but at the end of the day, his method is going to be focused on a taxation of the wealth, you know, and I'm not, I'm not making an argument for against him, okay? Um, and he's going to want to, but the key to his economic theory is he has a very distinct role of government. And and he wants to see the government, he sees the government as playing a just role in the distribution of wealth. Therefore, now why would he do that? What, what's his, this, what's his, what is his view of the state there? What is he assuming here? That the, the state is doing things for the good of the people. Yeah, he has a positive view of the state, first of all. Um, should we as Christians have a positive view of the state? Yeah. Sure we should. I mean, it's, it's commanded of us to. So we're, Christians can't be anti-state. Now, we may have a, we may have a definition and a understanding of the role of the state that may or may not then result in the state's role of, I mean, we, know, we, we see the state's role of taxation because the scripture itself affirms that, but taxation for what? Should it tax us in order to plant churches? You'd say no, probably, in this country, <laughs> at least. There was a day when they did. You know, our assembly, the Westminster Confession of Faith, 350 years ago in, in the Westminster Abbey, that was a convention called by who? British Parliament. Yeah, the state. That was a state-mandated, you know, kind of a deal. Uh, you guys got to get your act together. Figure out who, what we believe here in Britain and tell us what we believe. But come together and do it is basically what that was. And, and was that a lawful uh, law order of the state or not? Is it lawful for the state to uh, call fast days? And to have the church, uh, have the people of God in the country fast and pray for the country? Would that be something that the state should do? What do y'all think? What's a, what's a definition of call? 
They're saying you're required to do it? Well, would it even be something the state would do? Say, you know, well, Christians, we want you to, to gather together. We're going to have a, a, a fast day, which is, you know, we, we is the basis of some of our holidays. So we, we're going to have a fast day. What's the difference from the National Prayer Day? I mean. Exactly. National Prayer Day. Is that is that even legitimate for the state to do that? Do you think it is? Is it not? It wouldn't be legitimate for them to use the power of the sword to enforce it. To enforce it. So they could call it as a voluntary thing. So what's the difference between that and a, a prayer at a at a football game, high school football game? Is that lawful? Yes. You think it is? Yes. Why? Because the... Uh, a state-sponsored football game. ...was not given the authority... Uh, to limit individuals in their exercise of their religion. Okay, but what would be the argument? Somebody tell him the argument that would come against that. So your point is to focus on one side of the question and say it's not for the state to limit the exercise of religion. Okay? And that comes right out of a clause. How would the other side say it? Yeah. It's not their role to promote it. To promote it. There it is. Okay, so this is the whole issue of denominationalism and the state not being in there. And is the state promoting religion? Now, what's interesting about that is if the state says, okay, we're not going to promote a specific denomination of a religion, so it can't be Christian, it can't be Muslim, it can, you know, we can speak of God maybe in vain, but then the atheist comes along, which they have, and says, hold on, that's imposing a religion. I don't care if it's just theism. And they feel their rights are being abused, going to this game, having to endure a prayer state-sponsored. What do y'all think of that? And of course, Christians, at least Bible-believing Christians, says, well, I don't want my kids praying to a theistic God because that's an idol God. That's not a true God. I don't want my kids praying to a God that could just as well be any other God in the universe because there is no other God but Jesus Christ. So this thing gets kind of tough. This is a tough, sh- uh, tough issue. If the atheists are not, uh, if they're required to enter into that prayer, uh, that would be wrong. Is your kid compelled to play in that game? Uh, compelled to what? To play in the football game. If your kid is, it, well, isn't he? Are you are you saying that he's not? And so if if he's compelled to participate in the school because it's it's law that you have to participate in the school. And if they have a prayer in a school classroom or in a school-sponsored football game, aren't you discriminating against the atheist if you compel him to participate in a game where you have to where there's a prayer? No. Why not? Because he doesn't have to participate in the prayer. Well, he's in there. He's there. Well, it doesn't mean that he is. So you're saying he can sit there and just say, "I'm not going to pray," while everybody's yeah, praying. Yeah. What do y'all think? Anybody else have another view of that? Come on, we're getting into some stuff here before we get going. <laughs> so you don't want to miss the round table. What do y'all think? Come on, give me a contrary argument, somebody. What business is it of the state to even be concerned for prayer? But it's, it's it, not the state. It's not the state that is that is requiring the prayer or sponsoring the prayer or whatever. It's individuals. It's being done by a bunch of individuals. Over the microphone. Over the state-purchased microphone that goes and goes into the whole stadium. (laughs) It's not a bunch of Christians going over to the side and praying. This is imposing a prayer on everyone that's in the stadium. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Okay. Cody uh, just chimed in online. 
and said, uh, kind of a reversal, think about it, what if it were a Muslim praying and it was your kid, would that same argument be made in that case? Mm, I'd make it. You, 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 so why would the, why would you want a Muslim to be praying at a football game? If, if, if there are enough people there... So it's just a majority thing, basically. ...interest to the people, then, in my opinion, go ahead. So it's majority rules. The majority of the... So your doctrine is that... No, it is. You're saying if there's enough people there, that's the majority question. Go ahead. What are you going to say? Yeah. Go ahead. Back there. Um, in, in one way, though, too, if you look at... Like Paul, and when he's talking to the Greek, the the Saint, whoever they, I can't think of, mm-hmm. Areopagus. The Areopagus. I think the fact of just having a prayer opens up a discussion for people. It doesn't matter if it was the Muslim prayer or whatever. Later down the road, or makes people think that there is a God, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it has to be that particular God. So if we're getting too nitpicky on it, we're getting completely God out a God out of the picture. Mm-hmm. And then when the opportunity is, we can actually share people about mm-hmm. God. Let me it's ask you this. Like yeah. Opportunity yeah. No, I'm not saying right there, but I'm saying. But, but but that but that was first of all not a state sponsored uh, event. That was a uh, basically a lecture society, if you will. Yeah. And he's acknowledging that there is in this culture a, a you know a, a tribute to the God they don't know. And he takes that as a nice little springboard to say, well, let me tell you about that God you don't know, because you don't know him. <laughs> Any other thoughts? I want to go ahead and move on. But this is f- we're getting in a lot of stuff. Can you, can you uh, go 80 miles an hour in Nebraska? Do- we're asking the question. The question we're asking is, what is a legitimate law? At what point do we, what is a legitimate law? Now, I don't know how you can answer that question. That's not my point. But notice what you're asking. You're asking the question of the limits and the extent of state power, just as, on the contrary, we're asking this question of the limits and the extent of church power. These are two institutions that Christians are obliged to support. Are you talking with the 80, a legitimate state law or a legitimate Christian law? Either one. It depends on which one institution you're questioning. So, again, you have two institutions both of which enjoy what we call positive institution in Scripture. So I'm talking to a group of Christians right now. That's you. And I'm telling you that you don't have, it's not a voluntary society, state or church or family for that matter. These are all three societies or communities that God prescribed. He instituted it. It was his idea um, by positive institution, that is by divine law, he established these institutions. There, there are no other institutions in the world that God established in Scripture, by the way, not one. You know, these are the only three, family, church, and state. They have carefully, you know, they, of course, the Scripture is predominantly a redemptive historical document, so it predominantly focuses on the, the, uh, the constitution, if you will, of the church, but this, but it does. Scripture prescribe what is the constitute or the purpose of the state. It does prescribe not a form of government, but it does prescribe what we call are the elements of a government of a civil. What are the proper elements of a civil authority? Um, now, if you do, if you if you're saying that though, that what I'm trying to get you, you know, I'm talking about how you can even argue here, or how are you going to debate this stuff? And what I hope to happen in our study today is that you'll have a bit of a theological grid from which you can begin to make your cases. It can't just be, I want it. 
And you're going to have to go to Scripture for you're going to say, well, because the majority says so. Okay, you're going to have to, you, and, and it's going to say, eh, that's not, the, the, because the state doesn't get uh, divinely instituted by the people. Not if you're a Christian. You believe that Scripture, uh, God instituted the state. So it's not for me to ask the majority, what do you want the state to do? For us as a Christian, we're going to actually ask God today. We're going to say, God, what do you want the state to do? And then we're going to go out of this classroom as Christians, and we're going to try to advocate for that and to try to restrain or limit the, it's, it's, uh, the state's authority and power, and we're going to try to extend it. We're going to want to say, but there's some areas where it's supposed to do it, and the church isn't supposed to do it, and there's some things that it's not supposed to do, which the church is supposed to do, right? And then we get into a whole new question about the family and how that interacts with it, which gets it even more complicated because the family really is like the seed, if you will, of both church and state. So they have elements of church in it and elements of state in it. So that's that's sort of I want you, to, but I want you to hear. I'm not so worried. I'm not so concerned personally right now. I have a much bigger agenda than the issues. So I play these issues, and I want you to know that I'm I'm going to talk about 80 miles an hour in Nebraska, or I'm going to talk about prayer to you know football game, or we're going to talk about some other thing, you know, taxation and what's the proper and you know we'll talk about debating taxation and things like that. But to me, the purpose of this class just to make it clear is I want us to get a theology of this. And then let you guys get out there and duke it out with all those policies. <laughs> so with that, uh, okay, would you pray for us? Um, dear Lord and Heavenly Father, thank you for bringing us here tonight to commune in this fellowship, uh, greater understanding mm. your word and what that means in our lives and to grow in that knowledge. Uh, in the name of the Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, amen. Amen. And, and, and this sounds, I've never done this in the history of my church, but before I planted this church, I wrote this book, and this is what this book is about. It's about a case study in the 19th century uh, American religious experience, church state during the Civil War, and focusing on the border states. But in it, there is a little bit of a, there is a chapter on, you know, the, the church-state relationship in Hanover Presbytery, which was in Virginia during the Revolutionary period, out of which came our doctrine of church and state. And so it's pretty interesting. If you want to, you know, them through it, you don't have to buy it or anything like that. And I don't make any money off of it anyway. It's, it's an academic uh, book. So you, anybody that knows academic books knows you don't get any money from academic books. So don't think I have any motivation here other than that. Um, so let's look at your handout, and let's, let's see what we can do here. So... Um, let me, let me start the conversation with this. Okay, some of you know the Stephen Carter, maybe. He's a law professor here at Yale. I think he's still here, isn't he? Anybody know? I haven't quoted him in about five years, so I don't know if I'm still quoting him properly as a Yale professor or not. But anyway, he's written some stuff. But in a, in, I say here, in my this is a paper I wrote about uh, 10 years ago, uh, my doctoral work. But um, in a recent lecture, which was now about 10 years ago, <laughs> Stephen Carter observed how, quote, Conflict is the principal way in which religion and democracies relate, and maybe the principal way in which they should relate. Now, I want you to think about that statement. Let me say it one more time. Conflict is the principal way in which religion and democracies relate, and maybe the principal way in which they should relate. Now, what Carter didn't mean was that religion is opposed to the state. Okay? or necessarily any one vision of society per se. Rather, as he further explained about the American context, quote, 
American-styled separation owes its origin not to a sense of the danger of religion, but a sense of the importance of religion. They were separated because a mixing of the two had a tendency to corrupt true faith. Now, that is, to me, a very interesting uh, proposition. What, what, what do y'all think? What do y'all think about that? In other words, he's expressed. What is his concern by that statement? What is he kind of exposing in terms of church-state relations? What is he concerned about? Sounds like if the um, the state is instigating some one particular religion or church, then suddenly everyone's obligated to be a part of it. And okay. You're not. You may or may not be a real member of the church, and so it yeah. distorts maybe what that faith is all. Okay. About. Good. That's a that's a kind of a. a yeah, that's a sociological sort of a way of looking at his statement, and I think that's a pro- so he's he's a little nervous about the state imposing its doctrines upon the church, right? That's good, and I think that's right in the legal sense that you described. Think about it in a just in a less less sort of a concrete sense, but think of it in terms of of what he's saying about the true faith. In other words, what's interesting about this is. I would say probably 90% of the time when you and I hear the topic of church and state discussed, it's from the vantage point of protecting the state or protecting the uh, public square, you know, this idea of a naked public square. We're, We're nervous about the way religion, and you get it everywhere. You know that religion is the uh, the danger out there. You know, and you and of course we, it's fueled by the fundamentalists of all religions. You know, whether it's fundamentalist Muslims, fundamentalist you know, hyper fundamentalist Christians, whatever you, you know, all the wars and all these religious wars that that are around us. You can appreciate why we're so fearful of religion, because there's no doubt that that religious and I'll just call it sort of radical fundamentalism. The kind that wants to be, you know, take over the world by virtue of temporal means for the sake of the religion. That's what I mean by radical fundamentalism, okay? I mean using temporal means to take territory for Christ or for whatever. It's the, it's the church using the sword. Yeah. yeah, it's the church using the sword. So there's no doubt that my, you know, if you think of ISIL or ISIS or whatever we're calling them these days, you know, that's a church using the sword, used figuratively church, right? And that scares the bazibis out of us because there's nothing more dangerous than a, de- a religiously fueled war. And it ought to scare the bejesus out of us, okay? So let's, so that, but the interesting thing is that tends to be the dominant narrative of church and state of how to protect the state, how to protect the common good, the society from these, from religion. But Carter makes the point, and he's right, if you understand the history of church and state, especially in the way that it's been done here in America, it was, remember, those people came here, why? They were fleeing the church. They were, they were fleeing the oppression of the state against religious people. Okay, so there was a religious freedom, not just a state or civil freedom. And it's just ironic how that narrative is turned upside down. And I say that because part of what we're going to talk about in the church and state is not just limiting the church or uh, not just limiting the state in so far as what it does to impose itself on religion, but I'm also going to want to talk about the fact that the church oftentimes ceases to appreciate 
the manner which when they get in bed with the state or with politics, how they are complicit in, in compromising the purity of the church. You know, this arrow of influence goes both ways, you know. And so we're going to have to be honest. So that, that's just a, a preliminary statement here to say what we're about to study is as much about the limit and extent of church power, which came down and is known often as the spirituality doctrine of the church, as it is about the limitations and extent of state party uh, power, okay, or what we would call it for, you know, um, you know, well, whatever. Now, it's interesting, too, on the one hand, you have what I'd call radical fundamentalist religious, radical meaning that they, they utilize temporal means to propagate the faith. So in the Christian side, there's, there's some, some brands of what's called Reconstructionism. Um, theonomy is a little different if you know that term. Theonomy is more the church utilizing Old Testament law within itself. Reconstructionism is the, is the impetus of the church that wants to Christianize the, the, the state's constitution more or less and, and to base it off of the Old Testament law and other things like that. That's sort of that view. So on the one hand, you have this sort of radical, um, you know, fundamentalist religious aspect now, on the other extreme of the church is what may be described as some brands or at least forms of passivism. Now, what do you know about passivism? There, don't, what, do you, what do you think about that? Can the Christian go to? Can the Christian person uh, be a soldier or a policeman, or can they hold an office? Yes. Well, some pacifists are going to say no. Some pacifists are going to say no. Um, and that's that's another radical, sort of anti-fundamentalist view, if you will, where where now it's well. If, so, for instance, can I, as a pastor, how would you feel about it if I ran for the uh, the mayor? Do you think that would be legitimate? Go for it. Yeah. Okay, but but I don't want your opinion. Why do you say that? If you're an individual, like if you are running for mayor, not as you know head of the city, like in God's sense then sure, you can just be any citizen. And could I still be your pastor? And not try to exercise the authority of the mayor in that role, sure. Okay, good. She's making a lot of distinctions there. But now, I agree with her, biblically, that I wear different hats. I wear a father hat, I wear a pastor hat, I could wear a mayor hat. I don't agree with you, I agree with you biblically. I question, though, whether we would have the kind of how do I say it, um, the, the theological clarity within our congregation even to be able to trust me in the pulpit if I were a Democratic mayor and you're a Republican, uh, say, uh, advocate in all the policies that flow in those two camps. You would be hearing me. So t- historically... Um, pastors who hold to the position of church and state, as we were going to talk about it, recognize that it's just not practical. But don't. But but I wanted to make that distinction because I want to, as we start to talk about this, let's on the hyper. This side is radical fundamentalism, i.e., the use of temporal means to propagate the state. On the opposite pole is the radical passivism, which is that the state and and. 
they take this idea, it goes all the way back to Augustine, I think I'm misunderstanding of Augustine, but this idea of the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world, and if you think of it in spiritual terms, like there's the kingdom of the world, the kingdom of God, but you can't confuse that distinction between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world with church and state. We're going to say, according to Christ, that there is a kingdom that's not of this world, that is not of a civil authority, under the civil authority, and Caesar's legitimate, though. Thus, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar. All right, so I just wanted to get you warmed up a little bit. Let's, let's be disciplined here and follow your, uh, your handout here. So let's turn to the handout, part two. And uh, it picks up there with uh, Westminster Confession of Faith, Church, and State. So would someone just read that one? God, the Supreme. God, the Supreme Lord and King of all the world, hath ordained civil magistrates to be under him, over the people, for his own glory and the public good. And to this end, hath armed them with the power of the sword, for the defense and encouragement of them that are good, and for the punishment of evildoers. Now what's... that is amazingly carefully crafted. Um, I will share with you later. This was one of the major, major debates of Westminster was the issue. There was what's called the Erastian Controversy. And this was probably one of the biggest issues that they had tackled in the Westminster Confession of Faith was the relationship of church and state. Look, so this, this document was ca- very carefully crafted. So you really want to pay attention to the words here. What do you notice about these words? What are some words that would say... You can almost be asking just as much as what do you see, what are the words you see, and what are the words you don't see? Let's see if you can analyze that for a minute. So study that for a minute. Make that as big as you can, would you? That's number one. What's the first word that, just kind of read it for a minute, and what's the first word that sticks out at you? Ordained. Good. Who said that? That's the first word that sticks out at me, too. What does that mean? Well, I mean, in general, you don't need to have a, a, a precise definition. What what does that mean to you? That that why did that stick out to you? It's his he planned it in advance for that to happen. Okay, ordained is the is the is the English word that defines God prescribes, institutes, calls, decrees. In other words, that's positive institution. That's the word that we would describe as what's called giro divino. Uh, or by divine law, he ordained. He prescribed the office, and he and it's a calling that, that's that's derived from God. Someone picks up. God dials the phone. Someone picks it up and said, "Yes, I will." You know. So you so right there, that's a very 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 high view of the state. A very high view of the state. You see, God ordained ministers of the gospel. God ordained the magistrate, you know, kind of thing. So that's what's going on there. And notice it's civil. That's the, that's the next word that sticks out at you. There are other words in our vocabulary. What would be the the other word that could have been used there that would have been very important here? But it it's not. The antonym, so to speak. If it's civil, what isn't it? I guess, like, military? Is that what? Religious or spiritual? Yeah, spiritual. If it's if it's if it's civil, we're now dealing with this temporal 
geopolitical realm, and we're not dealing with the realm of redemption, spiritual, religious life. That's huge. It goes on to say, under him, now that's key, God is still ruler, whether they know it or not. (laughs) He ordained it. And who's it? And, and, and this is under him, but over the people. It didn't just say unbelievers, but all people. For his own glory. Now, notice this next one. Whoa, that's a big one. For what good? Okay, so what could it have said? For the good of my covenant people. You're supposed to watch out for the church state. You know, you're supposed to have an interest in the church state, Mr. State, whatever. No, I mean, this is, this is the concept of what? Common good. Common law. All right, so there's this common. And so, therefore, if you're a Christian mayor, um, should you show any bias whatsoever relative to a to to favoring Christians because you know these are my brothers and sisters in Christ but as a Christian I'm a, wanting, to, uh, wanting to obey God I recognize that this purpose of the state is for the common good and that that does indirectly as we'll see play into salvation the kind of world that allows for faith to flourish is a world of freedom of religious conscience and a world where people can be sustained temporally, right? So you could argue, and and I would, that, that this is perfect for the church. If the state does exactly what this does, that's the environment where the gospel can most flourish and the church can most flourish. Why? Because on the one hand, Alex de Tocqueville said that the, that religion was the first political institution in America. What he didn't mean is that we were temporally, you know, active. What do you think he meant? If anybody knows that quote from Alex de, de Tocqueville, you know his great volumes. You might know. What do you think he was saying? He came to America and he observed that the most powerful political institution was the church. Did public religion, huh? I'm guessing that it did public good. Nope, that's not what he was observing. It had power. What kind of power? Anybody? Anybody? Spiritual power. Okay, spiritual power. I think emotional yeah, power. Emotional power. It influenced civil discourse yeah. and policy. But why did it have so much power to do that, do you think? What was he observing? Anybody want to guess? Kind of hint by what we're talking about right now. I guess there was freedom in that? Like yeah. You he said it was amazing to come here from France and to observe that now that the church has been neutered, unpowered temporally, they didn't control purse, they didn't control land rights, they didn't control life and death, they didn't, the church didn't have the sword to punish, how that then, what, what, does, what does the human spirit do with that kind of power? We see, we, we, we are, we, we, we wall ourselves, we protect ourselves, we, we, we're not, but because the church did not have that power, they became the most powerful institution, because why? Because the freedom of conscience, because people now 
were not afraid of religion. They were not af- so they were now free to the power of conviction is much more powerful. Isn't it? That's what makes religious war so dangerous. The power of religion is much more powerful because it's the power of conscience. It comes from deeper than just outward fear. And so that's what he observed. And so it's an interesting thing here, and they will go on to say that later in the old version of this thing. And he hath armed them with the power of the sword. So that's the temporal thing. Now, here's another big word. What, what, what kind of power do they have? What kind of power does the state have here? It's to the specific end of the public good. Okay, it's the specific end of the public good, yeah. And it's for good, <laughs> for, for defending. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Say, say that slower again. For what? For the defense and encouragement of them that are good. So it's like a promoting good. Well, but, but don't get rid of that word defense too quickly. Yeah. It's a very defensive posture for good. Now, what, what do I mean by that? What, what could you have said there? Offensive. Okay, now what would you have expected there? Yeah, that you could have said that. So what would you have expected now? If, if it said, if, if there was a word that more or less communicated a, a more of offensive versus defense. Sending forth, equipping, like. Okay, it's, it's, it's millennialism, we call it. It's kingdom building. This is, this is going to build the kingdom of God. No, the state isn't, isn't asked here to build the kingdom of God. It's asked to defend the public good, and there are some other institution evidently is going to have to build. That's very interesting. Um, that are good for the punishment of evildoers. Okay. Um, notice number two. Someone read that one real quick. Contra pacifism, obviously. It is lawful for Christians to accept and execute the office of a magistrate when called thereunto, in the managing whereof, as they ought especially to maintain piety, justice, and peace, according to the wholesome laws of each commonwealth, so that for that end they may lawfully, now under the New Testament, wage war upon just and necessary. Okay, just war. And that's a huge word. It's got volumes upon volumes upon volumes of ethicists and theologians writing about it called just war theory. But it it goes back to this idea of a just war is a defensive war that is targeting that which is contrary to the common good. You see what I mean? So that's important. Um, Now notice the next one, number three. And this is is against Erastianism. This is a long one. This is probably the one they talked most about right here, number three. Civil magistrates may not assume to themselves the administration of the word and sacraments, or the power of the keys of the kingdom of heaven, or in the least interfere in matters of faith. Yet, as nursing fathers, it is the duty of civil magistrates to protect the church of our common Lord without giving the the preference to any denomination of Christians above the rest, in such a manner that all ecclesiastical persons, whatever, shall enjoy the full, free, and unquestioned liberty of discharging every part of their sacred functions without violence or danger. And as Jesus Christ hath appointed a regular government and discipline in his church, no law of any commonwealth should interfere with, let, or hinder the due exercise thereof 
among the voluntary members of any denomination of Christians according to their own profession and belief. It is the duty of civil magistrates to protect the person and good name of all their people in such an effectual manner as that no person be suffered, either upon pretense of religion or of infidelity, to offer any indignity, violence, abuse, or injury to any other person whatsoever, and to take order that all religious and ecclesiastical assemblies be held without molestation or disturbance. So what do you see there? Right. A good, kind of like a foundation for even the, the First Amendment and just how it's all. Certainly, and it, it came right from it. I mean, it, well, not right from but a lot of this was derived from the, sec, the, the Scottish Reformation influence in this, in this context. And a lot of that language, called it's called the Second Book of Discipline out of the Scottish Reformation. I'm going to quote from it in a minute for you to see it. Um, influenced not only Westminster, but then influenced Virginia during their controversy of which Jefferson took the language and wrote our, you know, First Amendment. So it's a very interesting history that ties you to Presbyterianism, actually, in this country. So that's just for your little for fun, fun fact. Um, okay, but what do you see substantively here? What, what kind of sticks out to you here? Anything? I think it's just keeping the separation um, even like a role of a of a pastor if he was coming as a civil person. As a that's a very important qualification yeah. you just said. Yeah, that's why as a civil person. It's the magistrate he's talking about, not Preston. Yes. Right. Good. Anything else that sticks out? I don't know how to really unpack it, but mm-hmm. effectual manner, as in you know. In my mind, and putting together, uh, you know, the state not interfering with effectual calling, that it's not a state-implied uh, prescription for uh, for belief, but that mm-hmm. we follow that calling That's right. our own free will. Good, good. That's right. Notice how robust the language is here that wants to establish an equally powerful and contrasting government that we would call the spiritual or, or church government. Do you see that? Over and over again, it's what's being defined here against what was then called Erastianism, which was the form that there was just two government. There was one government. That's the state. And that the state should have authority over the church, like the Queen of England or something. And this is a document that went overboard in quoting many scriptures, as you can see here, if you're familiar with this idea that, no, there is a parallel government here that is just as legitimate as this government. Okay? It's very interesting. Um, I find that we live in a country where um, we've really lost that, and even Christians have, have sort of succumbed to this. Uh, if... if um, well, let's let's take a, a situation where let's say uh, someone, let's say a Sunday school teacher does something horrible with respect to to a child. Uh, let's say a sexual abuse situation. You remember, like what happened in the Roman Catholic Church? I just read something about another church that happened recently. Um, now, how do you handle something like that? You have 
you have these two institutions, church and state. And I find out that, uh, let's say, this person has molested or, or done sexually abused a, a child. Okay? The temptation is to only see the civil response. Okay, I, I neatly got to call the state. Or if it's a family, I'm going to call DCF or whatever. But we want to also recognize that there is a other jurisdiction in this person's life. This person was acting qua church as a Sunday school teacher or whatever it is, a nursery worker or whatever it is. And so one of the things that's here is that would tell me my process for handling that would need to engage both, and they might be very different in their approach. The state's interest, as we'll see, is to what? Rightly so, to what? To protect that child and and to punish evildoers as a deterrent to hurting other childs. Okay? It's a defensive role. The church's interest is what? Redemptive. Okay? So notice how that's going to change things. It's not to suggest that the church isn't working with the state, and the state, well, wouldn't know to work with the church probably, but the approach that you would take would be very different. I would want to see this person, for instance, confess the sin. I'd want to help this person voluntarily go to the state. There'd be a whole approach that would focus first on how can I serve the interest of redemption in this person's life and in this child's life. There's a salvation question that's sitting in front of us here. And a redemption and a repentance and faith. And what would best serve? And sometimes those are very different goals. You know, the church, the state might immediately escalate the situation. It hits the airways. Does that serve the interest of the child? No. Not necessarily, but at some point... Maybe I don't, you know, don't be too. But my point, I'm, I'm, these are rhetorical questions now. Y'all don't need to answer any of these. <laughs> so, do, you know, how does that work? Whereas the state, the church man over here say, "Well, hold it now." What I'd like to see is this done in a manner where this abused child doesn't have as much of a scar as that child could have. How would that look to redeem both this person and the child? And so, you know, while I, we would all, I think, under rightly condemn you know, the stuff we heard about the Catholic Church and any other church that that in any way swept stuff under the rug and did any of this sort of stuff, it's getting it gets a little more confusing though as to how the process should work and whether we should lose totally the church and its responsibility in this question. It's is it just a state question, in other words? Well, no, you see. We believe in two governments, both of which are vitally important both of which have right means, both of which are, or neither of which are the same. So with that sort of statement, I want to jump off into something in your handout here. So let's turn to your handout, and I'm going to go down, and, uh, and the next one's just our duty to the state, and it's talking about pray, it talks about taxes, it talks about all that stuff. Um, well, let's read it just so we finish it. Someone read number four, and it pretty much speaks for itself. It is a duty of people to pray for magistrates, to honor their persons, to pay them tribute or other dues, to obey their lawful commands, and to be subject to their authority for conscience's sake. Infidelity or a difference in religion doth not make vo- not, doth not make void the magistrates' just and legal authority, nor free the people from their due obedience to them, from which ecclesiastical persons are not exempted, much less 
Blessed hath the Pope any power and jurisdiction over them and their dominions, or over any other people, and least of all, to deprive them of their dominions or lives, if he shall judge them to be heretics, or upon any other pretense whatsoever. And that's just a statement about no sword for the church. And the Pope is wrong for doing it kind of thing. So, so the idea here, um, I want you to jump down to page uh, 6. Um, George Gillespie, anybody heard of that guy? Irons, rods, blo- iron rods, blo- rod blossoming? And then the 111 uh, theses? Okay. Well, this guy, George Gillespie, is pretty huge. And in this context of church and state, while the assembly was meeting that you're reading, he published to them what's here described as the uh, uh, 111 propositions that he presented to the Westminster General Assembly at 1647. Now, as influenced by this document, another 19th century pastor named Thomas Peck and Stuart Robinson, I don't know, uh, I'm, I'm kind of the expert on Stuart Robinson, honestly, and I, I have a feeling he wrote it, but the one book that I wrote said Thomas wrote it, and I don't know what source he has for that. But anyway, I said Thomas Peck because that's the conventional wisdom. Also provides a good summary of the relationship of church and state based on those propositions. And this is a really nice little summary. So if we're asking the question of church and state biblically, I'm going to go back to Scripture in a minute. Um, this is a very nice typology. So you're asking the question, what's the relation? So in relation to God, it says what? The state is an ordinance of God considered as the creator. They re- it relates to God the creator. Now, notice the significance of that. Who are God's tr- Who is God's child as a creator? We could say from that vantage point, all God's pe- all the people of the world are the children of God. We are the world. We are the children, whatever it is. And they're right. If you relate to God as creator. He created us all. and We are all his natural or created children. Um, And therefore, the moral governor of mankind, while the church is an ordinance of God considered as the savior. Not that we don't acknowledge him as our creator. We do. And it's interesting, even in Genesis, it's written, though, Genesis, which is about the creation of the world. Those of you who've taken theology and covenant theology at this church know that Genesis was written as a covenant document, a covenant, a redemptive covenant document. God is presented there much more than just as a natural creator. He's presented there as a redeemer. From the very first words of Genesis 1, we get the clue that God is redeeming the cosmos, not just creating it. There's a redemptive theme that comes through the, the whole Genesis story that's almost always lost on us. Very deeply redemptive. This is huge, guys. So when we, re, when we relate to God, if we relate to it biblically, him biblically, biblically, it's the God who is the creator of the world who's now redeeming the world. So he's a redeemer. So if the state relates to God as creator... The church, its institutional role, is relating to God as Redeemer and Savior. And you see this developing here. Um, So, therefore, the state is ordained for man as man, the church for man as a sinner in a condition of inchoate restoration and salvation. Very different way of relating. I relate to the child molester as a sinner in need of salvation. The state relates to the child molester as a man who needs to be who needs to be uh, a, a man who needs to be restrained from hurting another man 
if you will. Both legitimate. The state is for the whole race of man. Again, this is 19th century language. The church consists of that portion of the race which is really, or by credible profession, the mediatorial body of Christ. In relation to the Constitution, where's the state's Constitution? It's what we call what? Doesn't say it real good right here, in my opinion. The rules which they are to be respectively regulated in the exercise of their functions. I didn't say much. You would say basically that the, the, the light of nature. The rule for the state is the light of nature. So we got a scientist over here, or I guess you're a scientist too. I think you're a physicist, right? Um, so you're a scientist. Um, he's 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 a he his office is under the authority of the state. He is working a state function if you will, and his book is nature, and he's studying it and, de- and deriving and observing in nature laws that are encoded in nature. We call them natural law. Okay, and so when he comes out with his theories, he's writing a constitution called, you know, the law of nature. And it's not that he's creating laws, he's, in, he's discovering them in his work, so to speak. He's an interpreter. Is he infallible? No, he's not infallible. Is the laws of nature infallible? Yes. Yes, they are. God created the world infallibly. (laughs) It's It's an infallible book. But the reader is not. Now, we've got this other book of Revelation called the Bible, the redemptive book. Is the redemptive book of the Bible infallible? But are the readers of the redemptive book infallible? There is your relation between church and state right there with science and faith, or sociology and faith, or political theorist and faith. This is why, for instance, you can have Christians who are blue and red. Because as Christians, do justice, love mercy, whatever else you would say. But now you've got some very different interpretations of nature. How best to distribute wealth? You know, what does the law of nature say is the most efficient and, and effective way of distributing wealth? Or what does the law of nature say? Or what medicine do we believe in? And um, uh, put it down for a minute. I'm going to go for a while. Um, do we believe in, um, uh, think about ho- what homeopathic medicine or what, what's, what's, I'm blanking here. Homeopathic. Yes, back there you said it. Homeopathic. Homeopathic, yes. So, you know, we've got this controversy going about healing and, and medicinal things going on. And you got Christians in this church who are saying, don't go do chemotherapy. You know, I have this homeopathic method for doing it. And it's from God. Because it's from for, because it's all natural. Okay? And then you got other Christians who say, well, yeah, but it's, so is chemotherapy natural. <laughs> it just it's just been done through all these systems, right? And so you got some real different opinions in this church, I can tell you that, about medicine and the way you relate medicine. Okay? Why? Because you have two infallible books, Nature and Grace, and you got two fallible readers, and that's exactly where, and and it's the state. Now, already you begin, how do we relate to God? I'm not... I don't have it. The state has no unique role of reading nature. We got to defer. 
And the scientist over here, or the sociologist over here, or the doctor over here, or the political theorist over here, the form of government that's best suited to do common grace, we don't see forms of government prescribed in Scripture. Is a dictator decried here anywhere? Can you think of anywhere where it's, thou shalt not have dictators, thou shalt not have monarchs, thou shalt not have, you know, what, czars, oligarchs, yeah, whatever? No. What you will see is the function of government, and to the degree that you could make a case that this form better serves this function of government, you might, that's the way you would start your, your conversation. See, I want to teach us how to talk as Christians here. This is a huge goal of mine in this class right now. It's not to get you into any position. I, I don't care if you're red or blue. I really could care less as your pastor. Um, what I care about is, can we start having a kind of discourse that really begins to think not about my, not out of just my sociology, you know, I happen to be, you know, a white male, and that's the way the world treats me, is I'm nothing but a white male who can only think in white male terms, you know, and then if you're a, you know, other race or other gender, and off we go into our, in our social politics, Right. And what I'm wanting is for Christians to kind of start elevating themselves a little bit and say, well, hold on here. Let's, let's ask what I really believe about the state. And let's ask myself, let's, let's study the laws of nature. And what are those laws of nature that are best suited? I mean, one of the things that, that's interesting to me is uh, I think one of the most interesting things to me, and again, I don't want to bias anything here, but uh, is the whole family system or, or the tribal system of law you know, that you have in the Middle East, in many areas of the Middle East. And it's very, it's interesting because if you were to look at the Afghan tribal leadership, patriarchal role, I mean, there's a lot of amazing similarities. I mean, they're, they're very close to what you would see in the Old Testament. And there's a lot of good things that comes out of that, actually. You've read about it. I, you can read stories of even some of our soldiers who who have been, you know, harmed and then find themselves in one of these tribes, and these tribes, by their ethical code, must consider strangers very as sacred. And, and you see that all that's right there in the Abrahamic, uh, Islamic, if you will, code. It, that's where Chris. There's another interesting thing here, by the way. Some of you are familiar with this big Wheaton controversy. Am I going about the Wheaton College? And there's this uh, professor who came out and can't remember her exact words, but I've been reading. No, you know, that front, you should know by now already, we haven't got, you should probably know already right now why I just am so frustrated with what I've been reading. Why do you think that is? Why, what, knowing what I've just said, what would frustrate the heck out of me? Uh, God is the same. No, I don't know what you just said, so I don't know. I know what my frustration with that, with the weekend thing is, though. About what? I know what my frustration is, but I'm not sure what your frustration is. Well, I, I, I'm not asking about me personally. I'm asking from the context of this discussion, what would frustrate me, do you think? Or what would frustrate you from the context of this, this conversation? That they're expecting this professor to be an infallible person that is, um, you know, putting forth ideas that are right and true with whatever the college believes. And if she comes here, I don't even know the gender yeah. professor, but if they come out and say something that's contrary to, you know, the college's own kind of prescribed doctrine. They're treating her as if, you know, it's it's complete larceny yeah. and she should be stripped of her job. So think, of, okay, let's play with that a little bit. Think about what it, if, if you were to go to Jesus 
And and what would, if you're looking at if you're relating to God as a redeemer God, so now I'm thinking of him as I would a a church, and I'm relating to him as my redeemer. Is there any other God than the God? If if no man can come to the Father save through me, uh, Jesus says as much as if you've rejected me, you've rejected God. So one side of the debate says this woman has compromised that. She's said a statement to the effect. If you're relating to God as Redeemer, that that just is in direct contradiction to what Jesus said. That all these other, if you were not a Jew, even a Jew who converted to Messianic, to the who 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 saw the Messiah, who rejected the Messiah, of, uh, who is we believe Jesus Christ. If you're a Jew, living in the first century to reject Christ, you are above the devil. That's what Jesus said. So, on the one hand, you could say Wheaton is right. Now, I'm not getting into the process. That we, there's another issue, and did they follow the right process and all that stuff, and that's another debate, if you've been reading the debate. So, don't get me into this. But, but now, think about it. If you're, but, if, but what is Wheaton? Is Wheaton a church? Is Wheaton a state? What's going on here? If you're relating to God as creator, you can rightly say that from, as a historical consequence... Christians and Muslims are of the same father. And we share a very long redemptive history together. So that when I go to the tribal communities in the hills of Afghanistan, you stand to see rules and ethics and laws that are almost identical to the ones you're going to read about in Genesis. You're going to hear the same language that we read about in Sodom and Gomorrah and why that family, remember, who didn't protect the interest of, uh, remember when they had the guests and they were molested, sexually molested? The, that's the kind of stuff you're going to hear about in that tribal place up in the, in the you know, mountains of Afghanistan. And you're going to say, where would you get that? And they're going to probably say, well, I got that. And it's going to be derived from the same historical roots under the same Father God that we have. So my frustration, again, with that debate, if you've been following it on, and even some of the people here, and one particular guy that I'd expect more of, honestly, at Yale, but is that it, it's just, we don't, even, we don't even parse that anymore. We don't even parse it. We don't say, hold it. So we need to go back and ask, who is Wheaton representing here? It, it says it's a Christian school, granted. So insofar as it views itself in a redemptive role, then maybe they were right whether they follow the right process or not. But it begs the question, what is a Christian school? Should a church be a school? Is there a difference between a religious organization, like, say, a Christian college, and a church? Yeah, I think there could be. But I don't think the church, do you think, from what we've read, do you think, well, again, I've just gone to, we relate to God as Father, as, as Creator verse, or, or Redeemer, and we have two very different constitutions. Would you want the church overseeing your work over there uh, at, at Yale? You want the session to be your boss <laughs> in physics? Probably not. They fund me. They what? <laughs> if they fund you? Yeah, I figured I'd get that. I get that from everybody um, over there. Uh, so, yeah, that's true. But but the point being is, yeah, there's some bigger questions here. We had a uh, um, 
we had an Old Testament scholar here that was a really good guy, very opposite. You know, he was going through his, his Old Testament. He was an Old Testament scholar, and he, he really had a big debate in his head. Do I want to go into a denominational seminary, or do I want to go into a religious uh, program, you know, a religious college? And why? Because he's concerned, what exactly am I teaching here? Am I teaching the history of religion? Am I teaching philosophical? Or am I teaching confessional theology? You see? So are y'all following what I'm saying here? In other words, I'm hoping we can start discoursing a little differently. Um, let, me, let me go to the next one. In relation to power, the power of the church is strictly and only ministerial and declarative. What does that mean? Ministerial is that we don't, you don't serve us. It's a servant-related power. Uh, we, and, it's, and, dec- and, and it's declarative, meaning it's not legislative. The church doesn't make laws. You just talk. We just talk. We declare. <laughs> That's right. You can say that in a declarative way. Do what? Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Is that what he said, don't worry about it? Or did he say that way? Go ahead, say it. you got to say it up, and you can't slander me privately. The, the job of the church is to talk, to declare. Yeah. And it can, well, I would say it's, yes. It, well, I, I, if, I'm, I'm not going to take your bait, but I would say that, that if, uh, if it talks, how far can it talk, though? That's the point of the ministerial. Or how far can it talk? And how less can it talk? It can only declare the law of God, nothing more, but also, Fred, come on, say it, nothing less. Nothing less, nothing more. Nothing less, nothing more. All right? Yes, he's a, he, he's a jerk, but anyway, that's another question. Um, okay, so relation to power, the church has ministerial and declarative. The power of the state is magisterial which means they make laws based on these, and um, an imperative. So it's a, you know, I can't, if you come to the Lord's table, it happens all the time, and someone's there, and uh, I know for a fact that they have not professed a faith in Christ, they have a lot. Um, should I manually remove that from them, according to what we just said? Should I say, no, you're not a Christian, you can't take it. Think about what I've done just there. Or should I even physically remove them? Say, no, you can't do that. No. My role is to declare every Sunday what are the terms of communion so that I can protect their conscience. So they will have a, a, so I can do what I'm, my role is to inform them according to conscience who should and should not do this. And then Paul says what? The blood is on you. He literally says that in 1 Corinthians 13. The blood is on you now. It's not on the church. If you want to rebel against it and take it, do so at your own risk. Some have even died by it, he says. I don't know what that means exactly, but we always, you know, what's going on with that? Right? So, no, we would never, ever, ever exercise temporal authority, including even restraining. We're going to declare, and then anybody can come who wants to come. And that's between them and the Lord. And that's the difference. Whereas the state, if it says that you can't, you know, do something, it can get a gun and say, get out of here. If, if, if it's a law of the land. Or get in here if it's a law of the land. Whatever it is. All right? So that's number three. And number four, in relation to form, 
the form of government for the church, the regulative and the constitutive principles of our organization are not matters to be determined by human reason. Now, see, the, the Scripture goes so far as to give us a what we call a form or the elements of government. And we can debate it. Now, there's good Christians that disagree because we're fallible. Is it hierarchicalism? Is it Presbyterianism? Is it Congregationalism? Those are forms of government, but we would all agree that it's supposed to be based on the apostolic constitution. It's, it, it's actually given to us, we're, we, we believe, by jura divino law. That's why you divide up into denominations, because we think we're violating conscience if we don't. But the state, it's going to say, what, does not have, it didn't give us anything like that. So you can't rightly, as a Christian, say, well, God prefers monarchalism versus democracy or vice versa. You can't say that. You know, the irony, here's one of the unnoted, there's always a sovereign. Every state has a sovereign. Who's the sovereign in America? Um, presidential, legislative, and... Uh, okay, those are the branches of government, and they certainly are the... the, the, the but who, are, who rules in America? The people. The people. It's the audience. Populism. Born out of common sense realism. Okay, is that more biblical? If you go to the scripture, does, do the masses necessarily have more wiv- wisdom than the few? Yeah, if you were if you were building a government off, for, off the principles of say Matthew, you know the, the the road is narrow and few enter by it, and all this kind of stuff, you go, man, we don't want a democracy. <laughs> and by the way, because we live in a democracy, that begins to interpret Christianity or religion, doesn't it? So now, what's a good interpretation of the Bible? What's a healthy church? Well, according to democratization principles. A healthy and good church is a big church. And a healthy and good interpretation of Scripture is the popular understanding of a passage of Scripture. And we start looking at populist media to determine that. Who gets the books published? Oh, if it's, you know, what are you you doing all of a sudden? You're you're saying Americana as 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 an ethos for how we interpret the authority of the church. That's very dangerous. You see, and that this stuff is pretty cool. Well, that, so in relation to sanctions, again, we've talked about this. Um, the authority and their rule, the sanction of ecclesiastical government is moral, appealing to the faith and the conscience of, of, of a parental discipline kind of style, designed for the good of the offender. It is a symbol in the keys. The sanction of civil government is force, appealing to the bodily sensibilities of the subject of the citizen, a penal administration designed to vindicate the majesty of justice and the supremacy of law with a very incidental, if any, reference to the good of the transgressor, etc., etc., the symbol of the sword. And then the relation to the scope of power, the scope and aim of civil power is only things temporal, very important. Of the ecclesiastical power, only things spiritual. Religious is a term not predicable of the acts of the state, and political and civil are not predicable of the acts of the church. I, this is a really nice little summary of the distinction between church and state that we believe comes from Scripture. And it, it could really, if you use these principles, now how would you ask the question, I don't know, should we legalize marriage? between Same-sex marriage. 
Well, what would you have to do? Don't even answer the question. Tell me what you're going to have to figure out there based on all this. What are you going to have to figure out? What are the questions you're going to have to ask to even address that as a Christian? Is it ecclesiastical or civil? Okay, good. And now let's go dig a little deeper. What would what would be a real defining issue there for that? Is marriage an ecclesiastical or civil topic? Right? That's what you're saying. Is it? <laughs> How would you know? What are you looking for here? Well, you can't get married in our society. Now, it's both. Okay. They're mixed mixed together. But what about people who get married by a justice of the peace? Is that not a religious, that's not a religious office? Well, you're just talking about anecdotal argument. I want you to give me a theological argument. Is, Is marriage a spiritual or civil topic from a theological point of view? Anybody want to jump at it? The, the word is theological, the word ecclesiastical. Civil union would be the, the civil. Okay. This is one of the most difficult questions I know to ask you. That's why I asked it, because this is very hard. But you're, okay, so you heard what he said. On the one hand, you could make the case that if, if we do see in Scripture that marriage is positively instituted, and it's given a very uh, spiritual meaning, the relation of church and state, I mean, Christ and his church. And it's so close that the, the, the Catholics, as you know, give it a sacramental, by, it, they, they discern it as a sacrament. If you believe marriage is a sacrament, then it is nothing but the church. Okay. Now, what he's alluding to, and it's really complicated, is... We would also discern in Scripture that marriage is not just for the covenant people. That it was instituted prior to the distinction of church and state, which happened, by the way, with Cain. Before that, it was all in the Adam family. Family, church, and state was all within the Edenic uh, community. And he was the head of the church. He was the head of the family. He was the head of the state. You'd say Adam and and Eve, his... I'm not going to get into that debate. How much she shared in that authority, I think a lot, but we can go into that. The key thing here, though, is that you had this this Edenic society where Eden is, we know, the head of the church, because that's what makes sense of Romans 5 when the second Adam comes as the second head. We know he was the first husband of a wife, at least in a covenanted sense. And we know that there was a state role, in the, the, you know, that he was had a temporal uh, authority over the land, Okay. Naming it, nomenclature is an exercise of authority. Naming animals is huge for that. Churches don't name animals. Scientists do. See? And so that was a state activity, nomenclature. Now, when you go to Cain, it's in their stuff. This is where that context is. You have the dividing of now redemptive history has begun, and you have the Cain and Abel division, one of the religion of the covenant line, the spirit, the, the religious covenant line, one who's excommunicated from that. Cain is excommunicated from the church. Okay? He's gone. He's no longer a covenant person because he rejected the sacrificial uh, grace of God as revealed, you know, and that was what that was about. By the way, you know, if you, I know if you've been through some other studies, you've learned this, but if you did, not I want to make this clear. You know, you'd look at it and say, God, come on. Wasn't that arbitrary, man? Get over it. God, get, get a life, God. I mean, come on. He brought, you his, he brought you all this food, man. You know, what's wrong with you, God? You don't like meat? I've even heard that. You know? Or no, Abel brought the meat. He brought the, uh, 
He's a vegetarian, so there you go. God does not like vegetarians. That's the whole problem here. Amen. <laughs> that would be the way people would isogeet, okay? What was going on there? If you've been reading your Bible in Genesis and you understand the Mosaic Covenant of which it's part, you understand that what, in effect, Abel was doing, Abel was, doing was bringing and making a sacrifice which is exercising faith in the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Cain rejected that gospel, rejected that sacrifice, and brought his own works righteousness as a substitute for the righteousness of Christ credited to him by sacrifice, uh, substitutionary sacrifice. So that's what was going on there in a very you know, embryonic form. Cain, therefore, is no longer in the church. And what does Cain do? Does anybody remember? Chapter 4? He starts a city. Good. Well, he didn't start it. Who started it? Who instituted the city? This is important. God put a mark, which is a covenanted mark, upon Cain. And in that, with that mark, he, he ordained, he, by divine law, established, instituted the state. Remember what Cain was afraid of? Lord, man, I'm screwed. You know, I'm outside this church, and now who's going to protect me against all these nations and peoples? Now, that raises a big question, by the way. Where did all these guys come from? We've already got one little generation going here. So, obviously, this is a history of covenant headship. It's not maybe an, institu- an individualistic history. There's, again, where this Americana post-enlightenment thing. We read the Bible like individuals. No, read the Bible covenantally. You know, the begots, the begots, the begots could have hundreds of people between them. <laughs> Because we're dealing with the, the history of a covenant people. We're not dealing with history of persons. So I don't know, but by the time we get to Cain, there's a whole lot of folks out there. And I'm not so sure they all came from the womb of Eve. So there, there gives you a little clue about how to read the Bible, right? But the point I'm making is God institutes the state which was defensive in character to defend the common good. You have rights too, Cain. You have the right to live and to, and to flourish in a temporal sense, even as that gives Cain time to repent and to go back to the church. We don't have any story of him doing that that I'm aware of. How are you relating this covenant of your life will be spared to institution of a city rather than like right. nomadic life? I don't know that there's a difference. City is not a, an urban term in the Bible. If you mean by that, I'm not sure. Planted in one place, rather. No, not necessarily. The city of man, I mean by that, any uh, or any civil government is, is what I mean by city. This Be careful. We think of cities in, in, in like urban concepts, right, or towns or something like that. No, city is a civil organization in Scripture. The city, he, he established a government. He established a civil society. Of governance and laws based so on natural Eden's law. It's a city too. Huh? So Eden. Absolutely, it would have been a city. Yeah. Okay. So, so you are y'all. Question time. I mean, some of you have been real quiet. I want you to uh, really try to get get your head around this stuff. This is really cool stuff. I think. Maybe you don't, but I do. You have some questions here. So, so marriage. It's hard. Because I know that, so one, one rule would be marriage, qua marriage, is a, is a ecclesial role, but we recognize the civil unions of, of all people of all faiths and none. That as it happens, remember, 
in in Western society at least, there would have never been. I mean, I went to Scotland, and to this day, the the St. Mocker's Church in Aberdeen, where I was going to school, was also the magistrate. I mean, was also the the the, uh, the guardian of such things as record keeping for the whole city, and marriage licenses, etc., etc., etc. Right? Um, and why? Because at that point in time in its history, every nation had a god. Don't don't forget that. That didn't happen until way later. Calvin's Geneva. I mean, there was no such thing as a nation state that did not have a patron God. And if your patron God is Jesus Christ, as it would have been in, in Aberdeen, then you would, you know, not, so the, the mar- marriage was defined by that community the same way you would define, in terms of relationship to men and women, it's not until very recently that even the concept of a marriage between same sex was even thought of, really. And so in that day that you had the state agreeing with the church as to what the definition of marriage is, therefore, why do we need to have two folks, you know, carrying the records? You do it. And you, you can do it on the authority of the state. And that's how this whole thing originated. Now we have a, a community which makes it so complicated that, that there is a difference of opinion between the common, what is perceived to be the common doctrine and the doctrine of the, of the church. And so some, and you've articulated it, would say let's, let's, let's be pro-civil unions and let's be anti the state getting involved in a denomination war between liberal Christians and, let's say, conservative Christians, two different denominations of Christians, and the state shouldn't be making a, a decision between which has the right definition of marriage. So some of us think that would be the, the best way to handle this thing. Let's just distinguish marriage as a religious institution Civil unions as a civil institution, though defined the same way in terms of the right relationship to the state, and therefore we have civil unions, marriages, and we're off we go. The church made a mistake by saying, and you probably do this in the ceremony here, I've mm-hmm. been to a wedding here, mm-hmm. but uh, under the authority given to me by the state. I don't think they have made a mistake. As long as I'm, I, I think I can do that. Because I do think the state has authority over ma- over civil unions. What I'm, what I would be saying there, though. But no, your the church is taking authority yeah. away from the state. Yeah, I don't have a problem with that, and I will say that. And the reason why, because I'll acknowledge that this institution is both a temporal and a spiritual institution. I won't do marriages if you came to me and say, "I'm not a Christian. I'm not looking to have a Christian marriage. I just want to do it in the church." I'm going to say, you know, go down to the courthouse. <laughs> I'm not going to do it. But if you're wanting a Christian marriage, I will also acknowledge, though, that that couple that I'm marrying has civil rights. They do have civil rights. They have temporal rights. And the state has, has authorized me to pronounce them man and wife. And I'm, I'm okay with that, though, I, you know, but you make a good point and you could play with it. But I'm okay with it at this point. But maybe I shouldn't be. I don't know. Let's, um, any other, some, some real questions here, and then I'm, if not, I'm going to make sure we can cover a few more things. I think we're, we, what time is it? I don't know if it's a question. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's time, actually. I do think about that a little bit because I'm a justice of the peace, mm-hmm. and I've married over so many couples mm-hmm. and stuff, so it's just, I mean, I never, I avoid the question. Um, I find out what the partner's name, and then if they ask me to marry, if it's a guy and a guy, I just say, I'm not available that day. Versus getting in the whole conversation, but I mean, because yeah. of the whole thing is saying civil union, there's that, that distinction. Yeah. And See, if I were a if I were a, a 
work not I didn't have the hat of the Christian, I had the hat of the civil magistrate. If I believe that I mean, imagine for a minute you have let's say you you would describe yourself as a gay Christian. Now what I mean by that is this is a let's say in the sense that what's his name um his book Wesley yeah Wesley Hill would say it. He means by that, look, I am wired the way I'm wired since I was born. I have same-sex attractions. He sees that like many other people are wired wrong and therefore struggle with certain sins that other Christians don't. The alcoholics got some bad wiring, he would say. The drug, you know, we, we all have bad wiring. That's called part of the curse. And sanctification is allowing Christ to be Lord over our wiring. And that's exactly what he advocates for in this book. It's a beautiful book on sanctification, about the best book I've ever read on sanctification, actually, even though it's about this other issue. And you ought to read it if you're just struggling with any sin. It's a really a powerful book. But one of the one of the challenges he gives, and I don't think he, he gets into this issue of marriage at all, or at least civil unions, one of the challenges he gives is but there's clearly a, a an, an intense struggle for the same for the gay Christian of loneliness. And how and where in, in our society there's no place for this person in terms of how they experience that. And I you know, I personally I don't know if you don't care but but um but personally see I'm gonna say, you know, I'm, I'm not real excited about all these laws that because they might get abused, we therefore change the laws because there could be those who are served by them. So if you're a person who's a same-sex, who's a gay Christian in the way I just defined it, as in physically has this sort of inclination, but spiritually is recognizing that I'm not, you know, like every Christian, I just don't give in to all my impulses. And so, you know, uh, you could call yourself, you're, you're wired to be a, uh, uh, I don't know, a, a sexaholic or something. You want, you know, heterosexual sex all the time. That doesn't mean that we just gave into it because it's just I'm made this way, right? So it's the same argument. So what, he w- what I would say, though, is wouldn't it be nice, though, for him to be able to have a platonic, intimate relationship with another man Wherein they are like like Jonathan and David, and they have a temporal civil rights that therefore allow them to have all the benefits that you would have as a marriage. The only issue that gets in there is this issue of children, and that's another. I'll just separate that for a moment. But just imagine you take the issue of children out and how, what we do with that, and you go into this whole issue there. And so that's an example. I'm, I don't know. I may be wrong. I'm just talking, thinking out loud with you here. And, um, and I'm just trying to ask the question. You see, this is the kind of stuff we as Christians can start thinking about. Relating to God as creator, you know, is a very different relationship as God is the father of, you know, gay, lesbians, etc. Ver- and he cares for them. He cares for them, lest we ever forget that. Versus my relating to God as redeemer. And I also care for them. But I care for them insofar as to, to see the kingdom of God, the, the spiritual, redemptive kingdom of God, wherein I want to preserve the sanctity of marriage after the image of Christ and his church, etc. So those are the kind of ways you think theologically about these things. That's what I really want you to be doing. And then you can, off you go, right? Other questions? Yeah. Do you think the schools should be teaching yeah. uh, creation uh, in their curriculum. Um, and do I think that the schools, well, it, when you say creation, it depends on what you mean, but, um, 
Well, well, but it depends on what you mean. I, I think a lot of churches don't teach the Bible when they teach creation. Uh, they teach uh, Scopes trial reactionary uh, stuff. Um, I see nothing in the Bible that speaks to the issue of evolution, for instance. Don't see a word of it. I see something in the Bible that speaks to the issue of is it fiat creation, though. So can I say from my creationism that God creates all things out of nothing? Yes, that's actually a creed that I would profess to be true, right? But I'm not going to, I don't believe the Bible tells me anything about that process other than that Adam is taken from the earth and that he is a, and Adam is a historical person. So Adam is a historical person insofar as he is the first covenant head. Insofar as the creation of Adam involves an evolutionary process, I have, I'm, I'm agnostic. You're looking at an agnostic on evolution. It, as in a profession, at least, I am. Now, I actually happen to be a science major, and I have some ideas about it. But, but just as a little podunk, little sci- undergraduate science major, which is not much, I know. But the point being is that I do, but as a pastor who's now in the hat of a biblical theologian, I can tell you that the church has really screwed up on the way it reads the Hebrew in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? So I want to be careful when I answer your question. No, I'm answering it. I'm saying when you say can the state teach creation, should the state, should the state I'm going to say um, I'm not sure. Insofar, in other words, insofar as creation is a theory among other theories, yeah, possibly. But as a Christian father and pastor, I can tell you right now, I don't want the state teaching my kids the Bible. All right? Exactly my position. Well, but see, I didn't say, yeah, well, I went, but I said I do two ways. You're doing that because they'll yeah. leave out yeah. all the things that right. you said in a lot of churches. So, but see what I did? I just talked, all both, I intentionally just talked about out of both sides of my mouth, didn't I? I said, on the one hand, it is a valid scientific theory, the possibility of, you, you could argue, but I'm not a scientist, but you could argue that there is a, 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 a I mean, I, I saw recently, I, I could find it on my, I had a big, con- there's, this, um, there's this, there's this, there's a scientist who just came out with this video, I don't know if y'all have seen it, but it's this sort of the, the, the proof of God video, right, you can't, I know you can't actually do it, but it's a very powerful scientific argument for why the rec- and he's engaging all this recent stuff that's been going on, um, why they're, you know, that, that the, the, it's sort of a syllogistic argument from science, natural science, that there has to be a God. And my point would be, so he just, what he was doing there, listen to me carefully, he was not presenting a biblical argument. There wasn't one Bible word in it. What he was presenting is a scientific theory for the existence of God. If there is such a thing as a scientific theory of the existence of God, I'd say, sure, the school can teach the scientific theory of the existence of God uh, as creator alongside uh, any other. Because, see, for us, now this is important. you gotta, you got to touch that little knob in there. <laughs> it's broken. Thanks for ruining everything. <laughs> we'll see. She's trying to set you all free here. I got. I got. This is really great. I've got me a. Uh, yeah. um, let me finish this because this is really important. Uh, I think if you need to leave, you can leave. It's not. You're not being rude if you walk out right now. But I'm at least finish this this point. It is. It is a, a. It is an atrocious statement for an evolutionist to say there is no God. Because that's a that's a big metaphysical statement. 
You can't get that statement. That That is a leap of faith to say there is no God, as in a God that directs evolution or a God that, you know, the whole intelligent design thing. I mean, on the other hand, as a Christian, I recognize that I cannot prove from science that there is. This guy thinks he can, but it's a theory. But I'm going to turn right around and say, so if I'm going to have this conversation, I'm going to say, from a church-state point of view, hey, Billy Bob, let's just, let's just be honest here. Uh, I can't prove that God exists. There's nothing I can do based on your platform of, or source of knowledge that can prove God. I can't take science. I can't take anything and do that. I can do syllogisms. I can do a lot of things, but it's not going to convince you. I can give you reasons for the belief in God. Don't get me wrong. I can do that, but I can't prove it. And you can't disprove God. You just can't do it. You might could give me reasons for why you don't see God, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, but you can't disprove God. So we're going to have to have a whole new way of thinking about this, is what I'd say. So, no, I would not be opposed to the state saying there are four scientific, there are four natural law theories one of which wants to get you to the idea of an intelligent design. And not get into it. It's just pure. It's, it's a natural law kind of an argument. If you want, and if there is a God, then you need to go to your church and, and ask the question, you know, what's he like? Uh, and then as a, as, a, as a church, though, I want to see the church get out of the business of science. I mean, insofar as the Bible, by good and necessary inference, says... There's a God, I'm going to tell you there's a God. I'm going to tell you to believe it. Insofar as the Bible says that Adam is created out of nothing, I'm going to tell you to believe it. Insofar as I'm going to tell you the Bible teaches that Adam was a historical, not a metaphorical person, and I, I definitely can say that because it would make total nonsense out of Romans 5 if I didn't. I'm going to tell you that. I'm going to tell you that, that humanity has is a unique creature, whether he derived from ununique creatures or not, but at some point, God breathed into him the image of God, spirit, the spirit that came from God. There's a imago Dei distinction of humanity, but of all others. But see, this is a faith science debate. Now we could do the same thing in all kinds of political debates that's going on between Sanders and Trump or something. You should be able to take the same logic that I just used and say, okay, now how do I feel, feel about you know San- Sanders socialism? If he or whatever his brand of socialism is, he calls himself a something socialist, something kind of democratic socialist or something like that. You know, could we make an argument that that is a legitimate theory, or at least not contrary to scripture? I don't know. I hadn't. I hadn't. I can't, I'm not telling you whether you can or not. I, I'm not going to be. A, I mean, I have some personal feelings about it, but I'm not going to go there. You know, can I say from scripture? If you've ever read some prophets, especially, that uh, the unequal distribution of wealth can be an, uh, an oppressive and tyrannical thing, yeah, I can say that. In fact, it sounds very familiar if you go read some of it, that, that, that the wealthy were sitting in ivory beds at the expense of those who, who, who plowed the land. And you can make a case that that's at least a principle. But how do you redistribute wealth? Do you use a socialist argument where you give that authority to the government? And the government there, and you can make the case, well, the government's supposed to protect this person from this person. This person, money is power. Power, therefore, needs to be constrained. 
economic power needs to be constrained on behalf of this. So the taxation issue is, however you want to look at taxation, it's a redistribution of wealth. That's what it is. You know, it's wealth going to the government and them distributing it somewhere. <laughs> That's what it's doing. So you can make that argument. On the other hand, you could make the argument, no, 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 no. Um, we don't, the state is building too much here. There's too much of a building thing going on with socialism. They're actually, instead of defending and restraining evil, they're actually now building a, a kingdom, if you will, in the proactive sense. So therefore, you could say, no, I'd rather it be, let's, let's come up with a whole new solution, talk about private equity, and, and maybe we make a law that says all corporations ha- are mandated to have a shared, a profit-sharing sorts of system. And maybe, you, I don't even know what I'm talking about now. But, you said, but, but the trickle-down, the, the laissez-faire radical trickle-down idea, because I believe in original sin, I think it's naive, that's all. Now, that's where I'm just coming out right now. You know, I think it's naive to think that power will voluntarily distribute itself all the time. I think there needs to be some regulation. But now, would I want to regulate it to do away with private initiative and private uh, wealth and private um, ownership? No. So, so we're not even talking about anything I even know about right now. <laughs> okay? <laughs> so don't go get me in one of these camps. I have a, a bad habit of thinking about third and fourth ways. That's the way I, I think. So I better let you go because I'm going to get in trouble. Bye. <laughs>